invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to Psalm 46. We've been going through the Psalms uh, in the evening uh, recently, and as we're making our way through the Psalms, we come to Psalm 46. Since I won't be here this evening, I thought uh, this is a, just such a wonderful Psalm, uh, Psalm 46, and uh, let's just jo- enjoy it together this morning and let the Lord himself uh, speak to us, remind us of who he is, what it means to belong to him. Psalm 46. Let's give our attention to God's Word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us. Lord, our God, we um, confess this morning that for many of us, these words are familiar. But Lord, we pray that uh, we would be transformed by these truths as your spirit gives us spiritual understanding and insight and the ability to believe these things with an ever-deepening faith and confidence in God. And I pray that we would see Jesus, who is our fortress, and love him and trust him, and that it would change the way we think and how we live and how we pray. And we pray these things because this is your will, in Jesus' name, amen. Ein feste Berg ist unser Gott. It's not exactly right, I should have checked with Vicky. Um, that's the... Uh, Martin Luther's first phrase of his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And with those words, Luther captured uh, the core truth of Psalm 46 and, and emboldened the beleaguered forces of the Reformation. The song rapidly gained popularity. Uh, it's been called the battle hymn of the Reformation. Some believe that Luther wrote it on his way to the Diet of Worms Worms, when his life was in grave danger as he was being challenged uh, to uh, answer for his faith. He was being charged with being a heretic, and in those days, heretics were uh, put to death, usually in very excruciating, painful ways. Others uh, suggest that he wrote it um, as a tribute to one of his dear friends who was executed for his faith by the Roman Catholic Church in August of 1527. Uh, Either way, it was a source of great comfort and courage 
for standing in Christ and his gospel when doing those things uh, brought about great loss and, and even the threat of death. But of course, before there was the uh, psalm, the hymn, there was the psalm, right? And Psalm 46 has been a blessing to God's people from the day it was penned. Uh, for over 3,000 years, this psalm has been a, a bulwark of comforting truth and strength and hope in the midst of great trouble. And before there was the psalm, there was the God of the psalm, uh, the eternal God, the God who is mighty, the God who is faithful, the God who exalts his name by helping his people. That's the God of Psalm 46. And the God who changes not, which is why uh, we can have confidence that the God of Psalm 46 is the same God to whom we pray today. And this is the ultimate gift of Psalm 46. It reveals to us, again, this God and invites us to trust and rest in Him. A Psalm 46 is a psalm for people in trouble. And as I was writing it this week, I was thinking of so many here in the congregation who are um, experiencing trouble, a heartbreaking trouble. Of, um, we just mentioned the hunters and the imminent birth and most likely death of a granddaughter. Uh, some are grieving loved ones desperately uh, this holiday season. Uh, some are uh, facing illnesses they did not expect and surgeries um, they were hoping would not come. Uh, this week, talked to some who uh, marriages and families devastated by sin and the consequences of that are just going to continue to, to roll out. Uh, we experience devastating trouble. In verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 46, we, we get a sense, word pictures of this kind of trouble where the earth is, is shifting and mountains are crumbling into the sea and the sea is, is uh, it's roaring and foaming. The sea in the, in the Bible is, is often um, a word picture for the source of chaos and, and destruction and death. Think of the images maybe you've seen of the tsunami crashing into the shore in Japan and villages simply swept away by the power of the sea. In verse 6, the psalmist talks about nations raging and kingdoms tottering. It's a, it's a picture of a, of a world in turmoil. Chaos is abounding. Society is crumbling. Things are falling apart, and forces of evil seem about to overtake uh, the people of God. If you're paying attention to the news, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to sense that um, we might be entering this sort of time. The foundations of our society really are uh, crumbling. Uh, any, any, any study you're reading in... Um, the cultural shifts and changes that are taking place, uh, you'll realize there's a tsunami of cultural chaos that's descending upon the Western uh, culture, the Western society. Uh, traditional biblical values are being swept away. Um, those were the foundations of, of how we thought about life and, and what life was for and, and how it should be structured. And all that's uh, being uh, challenged and it's crumbling. Progressives are demanding that uh, deviancy be celebrated and promoted, not merely allowed, and there are stiff penalties for those who do not obey. The church is under incredible uh, cultural pressure, and it's only going to get 
um, more severe, to conform to the new uh, moralities, particularly in the real, uh, regards to sex, sexual ethics. And there will be consequences uh, to hold to a biblical view of God and what it means to be a man and a woman and a family. That's going to have consequences. Now, those who resist are going to be increasingly ostracized, possibly, and I would say probably persecuted. On the international front, nations seem to be arming themselves for war. Uh, maybe you have experienced things personally in the last weeks or maybe this year, and you sense maybe in a new way the fragility of your life, that it can change profoundly, radically, unalterably in just a moment, one phone call. That you, the things that you most love and hold dear, can, you can lose them. And very quickly, your family, your health, your career, whatever it might be. And we tend to deal with those things by uh, trying to ignore them. Trying to uh, pretend that if we do the right things, have the right insurance policies, uh, have the right exercise regimen, do the right, practice the right things, uh, that we'll be protected. But it's not true, and that's not where Psalm 46 goes. Psalm 46 uh, takes us into the, the heart of trouble and shows us a truth that is greater than the trouble. Uh, notice first, we'll look at the core truth of Psalm 46. It's captured in, in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Uh, this is a foundational fact of biblical faith. Uh, in spite of the great turmoil and trouble uh, expressed in Psalm 46, um, the psalm is not, it's not a song of lament. This is a praise song. It, is, it exudes confidence. <coughs> it, it's extremely, um, there's, a, there's a joy that, that hums through the psalm. It has joy and hope in God, even in the midst of the, the cataclysmic trouble. Uh, as I was uh, just reading this and, and writing, it struck me, if you want a picture of what Psalm 46 maybe feels like, think of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. They've been beaten, and to be beaten means your back is ripped open with the whip, and they're in shackles. They can't move freely in a dark, cold, miserable Roman jail in the city of Philippi. And maybe very few people even know that they're there. And their prospects for the future are grim. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing psalms. And I can't help but wonder if Psalm 46 wasn't one of the psalms that they're singing. That, because this is exactly what Psalm 46 gives to us. It gives us the ability to sing with joy in the midst of trouble. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help. The word for very present um, suggests not only that God is near, but that he's near on purpose and, and that this reality is a well-proven principle. The suffering saints of every age have sought shelter in the power and the presence and promise of God, and none have sought in vain. The, the mighty fortress of God's sovereign purpose and saving love has, has never been breached. No one has ever sought shelter in, in the secret place of the Most High and found that it was not sufficient. 
It's never happened. God is a refuge and strength. And that's a foundational fact of biblical faith. It's a foundational fact that we can easily forget. We just kind of do in our life. And we live in a culture that um, really calls us to rely upon ourselves. But this is one of the most necessary truths of monotheism uh, and, and of biblical faith about God. If there is a God who made everything, and, and we believe that there is, we read about it in Jeremiah, this is for our call to worship. Uh, if, there's, if there's a God who made the galaxies by speaking, he's a mighty God. He's a mighty God. And, and if Scripture is true, and this God is sovereignly ordaining all that comes to pass, and that's exactly what Scripture teaches, that God is not a God who's just spun the world up and now lets it go, but he's in, he is incredibly, profoundly, intricately um, engaged in this world, so that he declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. He holds the heart of kings in his hands, Proverbs 21, verse 1. That means that, that Putin and Trump and all the rest of them, are they, their, their heart is in the hand of God. Every, every action they take is ordained by God. He knows every word before we speak it, Psalm 139, verse 4. He determines when and where we will live, that's Acts 17. He has determined the number of your days before one of them came to be, and not only how many there would be, but the contents of them, that's Psalm 139, 16. In your, day, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, God has, has penned them out, when as yet there were none of them. You see, that means that the life that you and I actually live, the life that we actually experience, even right now, is saturated with divine sovereignty. Sovereignty is not, first of all, a doctrine you believe. Sovereignty is, first of all, the reality you live in, whether you believe it or not. Every single second and every single circumstance in life was ordained, intended, by God's eternal purpose. You live a divinely directed life. You can't help it. Your experiences are divinely purposed experiences. Whether you recognize it or not. That's what the text means, you see, when it says God. It's not a pagan deity who has his assigned role that men have given to him. Little, little, little puppet that you pull the, spring, the, the strings and he does the things you'd like him to do. That's not, that's not this at all. This is the living, creating, sovereign, ordaining, ruling God. And that fundamental fact, you see, is crucial to experiencing the fruit of faith, which is fearlessness, confidence. Therefore, we will not fear. <clears throat> Far too often... Uh, we don't get to the therefore of Psalm 46. Uh, most of us are willing to admit, I believe, that God is sovereign. We've, we've been taught that and we acknowledge that. And we believe that he's, he's strong. We believe that he's faithful. And yet um, we're still afraid, particularly when life seems to begin to unravel. And so we don't experience uh, the therefore 
of Psalm 46. Therefore, we will not fear. You see, the psalmist is, is showing that because of the irrefutable fact of God as God, who he actually is, and his engagement with the world in which we live, there's a, there's a necessary consequence for those who believe it. Fearlessness. So why don't we, why do we so often miss that? You see, what's missing in our lives? For those of you who are mechanically inclined, uh, my dad taught me uh, as, a, as a boy trying to keep the lawnmower running and, uh, that you need, you need three basic things to make an engine run. You need compression and you need fuel. And what else? You need spark. And if it's not running, check compression, check fuel, check spark. If you have those three things, uh, the, you're going to have ignition of some sort. Something's going to blow up. The question then is, what is the spark that turns information concerning God, the fuel, into an experience of confidence in God? That's the explosion. What's the spark that makes that happen? So the things that you've been taught and you believe in your mind become this burning confidence in God. I think the answer is found in the word our. It's one of the most important words of the psalm, and it can be so easily overlooked. God is our refuge and strength. He's our present help in trouble, and therefore we will not fear. It's not simply that God is sovereign, but that God has, in his sovereignty, become our God. Our God. And there might be a reluctance either because of your, your sense of shame or because of just your uh, Dutch humility, weird kind of sort of false humility, that says, well, we, were, we couldn't really say that. that, that God is my God. How, how could I say that? Well, you could say that because God says it, and God calls us to believe it. Uh, God is not our God, you see, by our choice. He's our God by his choice. And he's, he is our God not because of what we've done. He's our God because of what we've done. He, but he's done. He has pledged his honor to be your God. He has sacrificed his son in order to be your God. Your saving, keeping, justifying, sanctifying, adopting, glorifying God. That's what our means. That God is all that he is for you and for me in Jesus Christ. By his own choice. By his own power. But, but he's all of this. He's not part of it. He's not some of it. God is our God. The full, glorious, saving God of Scripture. And that's, you see, the word that, that we have to grab onto. The, 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 the sovereignty of God as a doctrine will not give you fearlessness. If you don't have the confidence as a sovereign that the sovereign God who is is, is is gloriously and sovereignly for you and is exercising all the reality of his sovereign power and faithfulness on your behalf. The foundation for the experience of courage isn't mere sovereignty, but sovereignty that is flowing from eternal love and covered with atoning blood. And if we have those things, if we have that confidence, if the, if, if the hour there has all that rich truth and you claim and know and own that, then you see you will not fear. You won't fear. 
God is for me, who can be against me? Though an army encamp against me, I will not fear. And that will be true, you see. That confidence will be there even in the midst of alarming and cataclysmic, troubling circumstances. Because there's a troublesome context for faith. Notice, therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. That means that it's a trust in God's sovereignty or the fact of God's sovereignty and the fact that God is for us does not mean cataclysmic things will not happen. He is our refuge and strength, though the earth gives way. We tend to assume that, that if verse 1 is true, verse 2 won't happen. If God is our refuge and strength, that means bad things won't take place. That's what refuge means. Well, it clearly doesn't mean that in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, therefore we will not fear though. And it's critical, you see, that we understand that. If, if, we, if we assume that verse 1 means that verse 2 can't happen, the, consequences, the consequence of that belief is that when verse 2 does happen, you will be tempted to lose your faith. I was reading again just this past week of um, Laura Bush, uh, president, uh, the wife of the former president. She was talking about a tragic car accident that she was in when she was 16 years old in high school. She was driving to meet some friends. They were going to go see a movie, and um, she failed to see, a, to see a stop sign, and she, she plowed through the intersection and smashed into a, a, a car, killing another student, man named, a young man named Mike Douglas, star athlete, popular student in her school. And she recounts that even as she was flying through the air, having been um, ejected from her own vehicle, She's just begging God, please God, please God, please God, don't let him die, don't let him die. She didn't know who it was, but whoever it is, please God, don't let him die. But he died. She writes, I lost my faith that November. I lost it for many, many years. It was the first time that I had prayed to God for something, begged him for something, not the simple childhood wishing on a star, but humbly begging for another human life. And it was as, as if no one heard. My begging to my 17-year-old mind had made no difference. The only answer was the sound of Mrs. Douglas's sobs on the other side of that thin emergency room curtain. You see, friends, I've, I've said it before, but it bears repeating. It's so important that we have a correct understanding of God and the sovereignty of God. People lose their faith when their faith is in the God who prevents tragedies. And I don't want you to lose your faith. That is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is not the God who prevents tragedies. As we read in Isaiah chapter 43, this is, right, God says, when you go through the fire, when you go through the water, when you go through the river, I promise that I will be with you. And the river is not, it's not going to overwhelm you and the fire will not harm you, but you're going to go through the river. You're going to go through the water. You're going to go through the fire. Why? Because God ordained it. He's not the God who prevents tragedies. And so let's, 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 let's learn this truth so that our faith is, in, is in, in, in the biblical God. 
Now, this seems strange to us, and, and it, I think if it, it would help us if we just recognize we're Americans, and we think that things ought to be able to, there, are, there should be an answer and a solution. There, should, there ought to be some way to prevent these things, and, and, there, and there's this, even a moral obligation that we sense that, that God would have. I mean, what loving parent would ever allow their child to suffer if they could prevent the suffering? So God ought to protect his children, and, and, and how could he possibly be a good God if he does not prevent the tragedy, if that were in his power to do so? Well, the, the answer to the parent question, of course, is no parent would, would allow their child to experience a pain and, and calamity unless there was a higher end, a higher purpose. You go to the children's hospital downtown and you see, you see children who are suffering. And their parents are with them and you think, nobody asks, what sort of parent are you? Why did you bring your child here? Where the doctor is going to cut them up and, and, and then the, the chemotherapy is going to devastate their body. Why, why, what are you doing? Nobody, nobody asks that because we know what they're doing. They're trying to save their child. We accept that. Well, God is a loving heavenly father, not trying to, but with perfect wisdom and skill, actually saving you and me. And though we don't understand it, it doesn't make it less true. The, 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 little, the little three-year-olds there, they don't understand what's going on. But what do they do? They trust their mom and their dad and they hold their hand. And that's exactly what Christians are called to do. To trust in a God whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Isaiah 55. But that's not all that Scripture says. It doesn't just call us to trust what we don't understand because we, we trust God. It's true. It's essential. But notice how... God doesn't just, he doesn't tell us the reasons for the trouble, but what he does do is he gives us reasons for joy and hope in the midst of the trouble. That's verses 4 and 5. You see God at work in the midst of his people. Uh, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There is so much wonderful biblical theology in those phrases. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You see that theme of a river all the way through Scripture. Back in Genesis 2, we read of a, a river that's flowing out of Eden, out of the presence of God. He is the fountain of living water, the water of life. In Exodus, we see God bringing streams in the desert, in the wilderness, where there's no water. And yet God from a rock provides water. And that rock was what? Christ. God providing water in the wilderness. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of living water. Psalm 63, there's no water in this world. We live in a dry and weary land in which there is no water. And that's the truth of it. You see, the world around us is a desert, spiritually speaking. There's no life-giving water here. But there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the people of God. A spiritual river which actually brings life and joy and peace even in the middle of the wilderness. You remember what Jesus said to the, the Samaritan woman at the well? 
The woman who had had five husbands and now was living with her latest lover. And Jesus says, you keep drinking that water, you'll never, you'll never quench your thirst. But if you drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. And out of you will, spr- will flow springs of, of water. That's the river that makes glad the city of God. This river appears in Revelation 22. John writes, the last chapter in the Bible, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's the river that makes glad the city. And all we need to do is drink. And the scripture closes with that invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. That invitation goes out today. Are you thirsty? Are you tired of drinking all the stuff that only makes the thirst greater? Doesn't satisfy, brings no joy, brings no hope or peace. Jesus invites you to drink this water, this river of living water. Why does it make glad the city of God? Because that water you sing, that you see brings the, all that God has accomplished in Christ, all the grace and peace and hope and joy and life that's in Christ Jesus for sinners. It, 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 it comes without price. That's the river that makes glad the city of God. That's, that's the truth, you see, that, that make Paul and Silas sing in the Philippian jail. Jesus is Lord, and, and because Jesus has come and died and risen again and ascended on high, we know that God is for us and God is with us. And he will help us at the break of day. He will help us when the morning dawns. Some suggest that that phrase there is a reference to uh, right uh, before the day breaks. That's generally when the enemy would attack. First light. And so the point would be then that the very moment, the specific moment of our need, that's the moment when God's help will be present. And, and that is true, but it's true only if we correctly understand its truth. So Laura Bush, right, she needed God's help when, when that young man was dying. That was the exact moment she needed it, and in her mind she didn't receive it. And some of you may have had a similar experience. You begged with God to do something. But he didn't. But again, you see, friends, what if God is about greater things? And what about if this morning isn't just that, that, that moment of your need? What if it's about something much grander? You see, I think it's, it's pointing us to that morning uh, that will usher in the eternal day. There's going to be a day when the sun rises and doesn't set. When Jesus Christ comes again and everything is made new. And, and on, on that morning, you see, the very present, sufficient, mighty, faithful help of God will be the most precious, overwhelming reality in all the world as you see the judgment of God fall upon this world and find in Christ a refuge and a fortress. On that morning, we're told, the dead will rise to meet the Lord. And on that morning, the river of grace in Christ will flow as bright as a crystal. And we will see and experience the help of God as God himself comes to dwell with us. And we with him 
as it says in Revelation 21, now the dwelling place of God is with men and God will dwell with them and be their people. You see, that's the morning when Psalm 46 comes true in all of its fullness and all of its glory. And that's the morning when God is going to speak, as we read in the following verses. God speaks, and the, the nations, the kingdoms, the kingdoms and, and nations are, are raging, and the kingdoms are tottering, and, and he utters his voice, and the earth melts. Over all the chaos and tumult and, and the, the, the misery and noise and wickedness, you see, of this world, there is a God who rules. And when he speaks, his will and word is accomplished. And when he speaks, there will, be, there will be peace. And so we don't understand why the things that are happening now are happening now. But we, we know that, that, that there is a God who reigns and that, that God is for us. And, and that when the morning dawns, that God will be faithful and we will be safe. And so there's a single command then in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. That's the only command in the psalm, and it comes directly from the mouth of God. It is God himself speaking. It's as if God is saying, there's one thing I want you to hear, one thing I want you to know. Be still and know that I am God. And he speaks that to the whole world, not just to his church. He's speaking as a sovereign Lord and King over all his universe. Jesus speaking here in his pre-incarnate state, saying, right, to the winds and the waves of this world, be still. And when he says this, uh, it will be still. It must be, you see, because, because God is going to be exalted. God's purpose is revealed. I will be, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And, and, and that's such a comfort to Christians. That God's purposes will stand and his ultimate purpose is to glorify his name. And, and he's attached his name to your well-being, your eternal salvation. So for you to be lost would be for God to lose his honor. And so you see, this is in God's mission statement for the world. There's, there's a reason to be still. There's a reason to be still. And to know that he is God. Not the God of our making. Not the God who prevents tragedies. Not the God who's supposed to sort of just help us um, make it through life without pain. But the God who is God. The God who ordains the pain for a greater purpose and end. And it's, I know it's easy to say. that the, Psalm 46 is written so that when you're in the pain, you can lay on these words. You can rest in these truths. You can take it to heart. Our call is to trust him then. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And it's those two aspects of God. The Lord of hosts. Do you know what the hosts are? The hosts are the armies of heaven. It manifests the might, the incredible might of King Jesus that make all the armies of this world a speck of dust. Um, Jesus, the captain of the hosts of heaven, he is with us. We don't have to be afraid. Of anything, of anyone. And he's faithful. He's the God of Jacob. Remember Jacob, the deceiver, the conniver, the, the sinner, the man who did not get it for year upon year upon year, who tried so hard to make it uh, by his strength, by his conniving, and, and, uh, but who God over and over again brings him to an end of himself, uh, promising, you see, showing Jacob that to, to live is to live upon God, to live upon his word, to live upon his promise. That we have nothing but the Lord and his faithfulness. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
And friends, you know that this psalm is, is most wonderfully, beautifully um, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. Christ himself is the mighty fortress. He really is. Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not, not a pain-free life, but rest and joy and peace and everlasting life. Come to me. He's the mighty fortress. He is the river. Drink of me. If you, if you take the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. Drink of me. Abide in me. You'll bear much fruit. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the captain of the army of our salvation. He's the God of Jacob, the faithful God who saves and loves sinners. And so, friends, this psalm calls us, you see, to fix our thoughts and our hearts on a reality that's, that is greater and deeper and truer than the reality of our circumstances and even our crises. To fix our thoughts on the reality of this God, the sovereign, saving God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's not really a psalm about trials. It's a psalm about God. It's a bold confession about the the power of God and how we can have confidence because of the faithfulness of God. How we don't need to be afraid because God himself has bound himself to you, to me, forever, forever. And that you will not meet a single circumstance in your life, no matter how painful, that has not come to you through the loving hands of your heavenly Father who gave his Son for you. So weep, but do it in faith. And be thankful, all the days, all the goodness, all the kindness that we receive. And have hope, knowing that one day, what God has begun, he's going to carry out. One day we're going to see this Jesus, who is today our refuge and our strength, our help in trouble. Let's walk in faith in him. Amen. God, you know the, the lives we live because you've ordained them. And you know the pains that we carry because you've called us to these afflictions. We've been destined for these things, and yet, Lord, we are not destined for wrath, but for glory. And I pray, Lord, that the big picture and the deepest, truest things would be more and more the most real things in our life, and that we'd feel free to weep that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and yet we would not lose sight of the sovereign goodness and purposes of God. And that means, Lord, that there's not a detail of our life that's not unknown to you because you ordained it and there's not a single circumstance where we will be left alone because you've claimed us as your very own. You've called us to be your people, your child. And Father, I pray this morning if there be any here who do not know this truth because they've not confessed their sin, they've not come to Christ who, who is the fortress, who is the river, Lord, I pray that you would show them how free and beautiful it is to be found in Christ and that it can be theirs today by, by confessing their faith and believing in him. And Lord, for those of us who've known these truths our whole lives and, and yet somehow uh, this sovereign God, has, we've, not, we've not tasted the sweetness of it because we're not, we're not completely confident that you're our God. And we don't understand your ways. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us that connection, that spark, that sovereignty becomes beautiful and precious, even in the midst of confusion and pain. And Lord, I, I pray that you'd keep us from trying to, to make sense of it all. We, we are, our puny little minds are not able to do so, but Lord, I pray that we can trust in what we do know. That a God who loved us from eternity and a God who gave us his son 
to die for us on a cross and to give us eternity and glory. That God is, is, is gloriously and joyfully serious about every single thing he calls us to bear. So may we trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.